now on to our regularly scheduled program. Local data showed that in February and March of 1969 uh, that they were colder than what had been the norm for the decade uh, that preceded that uh, in London. But uh, then came April. Thank goodness for April, right? And with it, the sun. Not quite our experience, but with it, the sun. And this new month saw a, a new record high for sunlight hours, again, in and around London uh, during the same decade span. And it was glorious, as you can imagine. But imagine what it would be like to be in London uh, back then. If you were in that kind of gray and foggy and kind of cold. You don't have to imagine that, right? That's, yeah, that's, we, we call that last week. We call that right now, actually. The joy and delight, though, of course, of seeing the sun in that April shining once more. Feeling its warmth on our body uh, just as much as it warms our heart. But we don't have to imagine. We don't have to imagine because we're Seattleites, but we don't have to imagine because a musician named George was inspired by the moment and wrote a song reflecting what it was like and what his experience was. You want to know what February and March in London were like in 1969? Well, George wrote, it's been a long, cold, lonely winter, right? You want to know what the change and what that change felt like that came upon people when that April sun shone on them? Well, George writes, smiles returning to the faces. And I'm sure a great many of these faces, now all aglow, burst into a chorus of their own, much the way that George sang. Here comes the sun, do-do-do-do. Of course, that it's, it's, hey, I'm getting to that part. Of course, it leaves but one thing for George. Of course, George Harrison, the Beatles, who wrote that song. That he writes, it's all right. It's all right. It's all right. We've heard that one, right? You've heard that song? Right? You know that one? Well, that is uh, quite a song for our own day. Uh, as, we come, as we come to this Palm Sunday, and I actually put in my notes, Palm Sunday, do-do-do-do. <laughs> Here comes the sun, S-O-N. And though we might enjoy today's backstory with all kinds of soundtracks, we might put with this story all kinds of songs that might come to our imagination and in our ears, maybe in our own knowledge or on our own playlists. Uh, some might be light and airy like that Beatles song, right? Here comes the sun. But the music of that first Palm Sunday uh, not only signals that it's all right, but will actually shake the community. And I dare say here that it still shakes communities even in our own day and age. That first, song, uh, that first Palm Sunday, uh, that ancient one, the crowd that was uh, gathered was comprised of people, and it's important for us to hear who that crowd was, that they were people that had been pushed around like socio-political uh, pawns for generations. They'd been under the thumb of various leaders, and as they were parading into Jerusalem with Jesus, uh, they come with uh, shouts of jubilation, and they're shouting and filling the air with song, it's a celebratory entourage that's looking at the end of that time of oppression. Today, their cause will be advanced, unlike yesterday. Their foe will be vanquished and their wrongs will be righted. That's what they're hoping for in short. And as they come, they're hoping that that long, cold, lonely winter is about to end. 
Of course, John Lennon, another Beatle, uh, once observed that the Beatles had become in his lifetime more popular than Jesus. They weren't on the first century playlist. There's no Beatles songs then. Instead, we learn in verse 9 that the crowd is singing, and they're quite shouting it quite really here, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And what they're shouting and singing here is Psalm 118. What are they shouting when they shout that song? Well, here's what they're saying. Hosanna, save us, rescue us, deliver us. Of course, over time, uh, this phrase that's used here uh, is joined with the Son of David, but its usage had changed uh, over time. And Jesus is saving king, of course, here, and his long-awaited messianic rescuer. But the change here is that it became more of a song of exaltation, less, than, less of, a, of a prayer of expectation here. So they're exalting Jesus into a very particular status with these words. But as they look at Jesus, they see him as the new king. The line that seems to have functioned uh, in that way of honoring, there is something in there. There's something for us to take note. It's one of these things that we might see in our own lives where we might give expression or words to something that's bigger than what we imagined. Where we might actually say something that has deeper meanings than what we intended to say. We spoke outside of ourselves in some ways, but the words are powerful. And I think that's what's going on here. They say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This man, this Jesus, comes as God's representative to accomplish God's purposes. And again, as we know the rest of the story of Holy Week, there's something bigger that's going on here that they might not be ready to imagine quite fully. Of course, they fill it out at the end with Hosanna in the highest heavens. In other words, let this cheer, let this song, let this jubilation let it fill the air everywhere. Let this song go out to all the places. That's the excitement that's there. Exuberant, expectant, and shouted by a formidable crowd. Of course, with preparations underway uh, for the coming Passover holiday, the city has all kinds of pilgrims that are streaming in, and this group is part of those, those pilgrims who are coming in the city to join the observance here. They're coming from all over. They're coming from all around. And the atmosphere that day must have been absolutely electric with people expressing zeal and national and ethnic pride, being Jewish and coming together with their, with their, their brothers and their sisters. It must have hit a fever pitch. The expectations running even higher as this song is being sung. And the scene of pilgrims might be important for us to note here. These are out-of-towners. They're coming in from the countryside. They're coming from all over. And they're heralding this rabbi as they stream into the city. Well, that would be threatening to you if you lived in the city. You had a different way of looking at things. It'd be socially disruptive. And we know it was. Some, of course, here might remember Jesus Christ Superstar. You remember Jesus Christ Superstar? Anybody watch it recently? Anybody watch Jesus Christ Superstar in the last 48 hours? Anybody now planning to watch it in the next 48 hours? Remember that line where the authorities, they sing uh, with the same, the same Palm Sunday celebration. Tell the rabble to be quiet. We anticipate a riot. This common crowd is much too loud. Tell the mob who sing your song that they are fools and they are wrong. They are a curse. They should disperse. But also notice what the text says in this, in this chapter. It says in verse 46, the chief priests and the Pharisees wanted to arrest Jesus, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet, they fear the crowds. 
Jesus here, of course, is on a crash course with the religious and civic authorities of his day. But what's really going to happen here is two kingdoms are about to collide. And we know when two things collide, there's a large smash, a crash, a shaking of things. Sociologists studying the response of powerful people and groups in time of disaster would probably look at this situation and what these leaders are about to conspire to do as another example of what they call elite panic. Those in power assuming that in the moment of turmoil and vulnerability that the masses aim to topple hierarchy and social order. That mobs will form and when they do they'll be calling for heads. And so leadership, what they do in this elite panic, and it's very predictable, in order to counter this, they employ command and control techniques. So arresting Jesus would be one such technique. Decapitate the movement is what they're trying to do here to quell the disruption. That, of course, doesn't always go the way that we hope or even plan. And, of course, we know this in the church's history with that popular line, the blood of martyrs, the seed of the church. And in those efforts to stamp things out, it causes them to grow even larger and bigger and deeper. But make no mistake, this is a disruptive scene. This collision between kingdoms is also a collision of the expectations of those who are in the surrounding area and those who live in the city. So much so that in verse 10, Jesus' entry puts the whole place in turmoil. It's that word turmoil there. That's not a soft word. This is not a cushy word that things are, are just sort of disrupted. It's, it'll be fine. We'll get, we'll get over this. But it's actually a bigger word that's used in this gospel in a couple different places uh, following this. You know, note in chapter 27, verse 51, when the veil is torn... And the earth shook. The earth shook. I don't think anybody would imagine the earth shaking as being a minor ordeal, uh, particularly in that time, but even in our own day. Well, that's that same word. Shook is the same word that's translated turmoil early on. In chapter 28, verse 4, when the guards see the angelic being, they shook and became dead men. That same word there is that same word for turmoil that we see. Again, if you see something that causes you to pass out out of total fear of what you see, that's no small ordeal. You were shook <laughs> quite, quite dramatically. So no small commotion here, but why? Why would any group, let alone a whole city, respond in this way? Respond to a Jesus who's coming into town and the songs of delight and exuberance and exultation that are coming from this crowd. Why would you respond with this kind of shaking of the earth, this turmoil type expression, to be shaken like that. Well, we already know what the crowd wants. They want deliverance, they want rescue, they want salvation. And we see as much in their words. Their actions demonstrate how it was going to come about. They're covering the road here with cloaks and branches. They're rolling out the red carpet, in other words, for Jesus at this point. Uh, paved with cloaks, of course, would signal that they're throwing their lot in with Jesus. They're saying, we're with this. Whatever Jesus is up to, we're going with him. I throw my cloak in there. I'm in there with, with him. Jesus is my champion. Or you might say, I'm with Jesus. Or Jesus fights my cause. You probably wouldn't say Jesus is my homeboy. I know that was a popular on t-shirts a few years ago. Um, that's not quite getting to it. But they would say, we are aligned with Jesus, and we're throwing our lot in with him. The cloaks only cover part of the path here. 
In John's account, the crowd is waving the branches, as some of us did this morning, waving the palm branches. But here in Matthew, and no less symbolic, the branches are cut and they're thrown on the ground alongside those cloaks. The palm itself back in this day was a symbol of victory in the Roman uh, world. But probably closer to the heart and identity of this Jewish audience was their use by crowds following the victories in the Maccabean revolts uh, nearly two centuries earlier. Those stories, of course, would have been remembered. They would have been stories that are told amongst family members. There might even be people uh, that had, could trace their lineage back to even folks that were fighting in those revolts and could talk about uh, this particular member of this generation and handing that down story after story. Of course, the story there is one of vanquishing faithless foreign overlords. And you can immediately see the thoughts that might come through people's heads as they look at Rome and its power. Foreign occupiers create a real problem for the nation that identifies itself with global significance. It would be tough to be living in a culture where you believe that God has a divine plan for you to be one that blesses all the world and meanwhile be under the domination of a world power. And so the coupling of the shouts and actions provide a pretty good picture of what the people were expecting that day. This messianic king who has now come to save us this is the conquering Jesus they're rallying around, who they believe will free them from their present political captivity and whose kingdom will be established here and now. Present suffering and tyranny of faithless Rome or any other nation, you can name the nations in previous generations, will now be thrown off their shoulders for good. And that expectation doesn't come from nowhere. It's not like they just made that up and thought, hey, we want to have freedom. And so we're just going to make this up in our generation. But there's a longer story here that they're inhabiting here. We see in Zechariah chapter 9, beginning in verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. They were seeing Zechariah chapter 9 play out right before them as Jesus comes riding in on this colt. And they're hoping to see what is promised in Zechariah 9.10 and beyond that they might see peace uh, to the ends of the earth. With all the commotion the natural response of the city is to ask, who is this? Who is this person that comes in who's writing, who's fulfilling these ancient prophecies? And the question that will be answered by the crowd in verse 11, but also a question we as readers are to continue to ask. Who is this? Who is this one that rides? Henry Hart uh, Millman's hymn, Ride On, Ride On in Majesty, is a, uh, is a popular Palm Sunday hymn written in 1827. It speaks to that first Palm Sunday, and it begins with these words, and words that we might expect in the first verse. He wrote, Ride on, ride on in majesty. Hark, all the tribes, Hosanna cry. O Savior meek, pursue your road with palms and scattered garments strode. But the second verse of this particular psalm, and those that follow take a different tone. If you have a chance this week, I encourage you to go out and look at the, the words, but I want to draw our attention particularly to another vantage point that shows up in the third verse 
of that hymn. At that point, he says, this is what's observed about Jesus' entry that first Palm Sunday by an altogether different crowd. The hymn says, ride on, ride on in majesty. The angel armies of the sky look down with sad and wondering eyes to see the approaching sacrifice. Though they could feel the colliding kingdoms, I dare imagine that no one amongst the many in that ancient audience, in that first century group that was gathered, saw this approaching sacrifice. But by week's end, the hosannas that are sung will be overshadowed by another crowd. That other crowd might be more considered a local crowd. That here they are calling for Jesus' execution. What then follows is the response from the earthly kingdom to that heavenly kingdom that's come into the community. Illegal trial, unjust abuses, open mockings, suffering and death in the most despicable of ways, humiliation, and shameful ways expressed that are unimaginable. In short, the threat of death as a flex of power, and not just the threat of death, the execution of it as well. But Jesus knows this is coming. Jesus knows this is coming. Jesus knows that that's what waits for him in Jerusalem. We know that because in Matthew chapter 16, it says from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. We know that because in Matthew 17, just one chapter after 16, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into human hands and they will kill him and on the third day he will be raised. We know that because in Matthew chapter 20, while Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves and said to them on the way, look, we are going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised. Jesus knows what is coming and he's talked about that with his closest followers. And even in the clash of kingdoms, even in the clash of these two kingdoms, Jesus is still in control. Jesus sees what lies ahead, and Jesus still rode on. What do we do with that? What do we do with that information, with that story? thinking this past week about all the many names that we experience when we see church congregations these days. You're like, Jimmy, that's a weird way to go with that story. I remember driving through a town in Montana and seeing just block after block of churches with kind of creative names. You know, Thirst Church, Worship Before Lunch Church, whatever the names are. But I haven't seen very many churches that have taken on Quo Vadis, as their name. There is one that holds that name. It's a church in Italy. And Michelle Cronister writes about her visit to the ancient Quo Vadis church in Italy. Of course, that translates, where are you going? 
is what that translates to. The church draws its name, of course, from an apocryphal story related to the martyrdom of Peter. And I wonder if in that martyrdom story is what we do with this story. I wonder if we become that, that church as we continue to commemorate and celebrate Palm Sunday, but even as we commemorate what comes up here in Holy Week, that we ask the same question, where are you going? In the story, Peter flees persecution in Rome. And on his way out of town, he encounters Jesus walking the same road, but going the opposite direction. So Peter's afraid of the persecution going on in Rome, so he's running out of town. But as he goes down the road, he sees Jesus come in the opposite direction. Is how the story goes. In surprise, Peter asked Jesus, where are you going? Where are you going? And Jesus' answer to him, again in that apocryphal story, I'm going to Rome to be crucified again. I'm going to Rome to be crucified again. Well, as the story goes, Peter follows Jesus to the city where he then faces his own martyrdom. Now, this is not said here to encourage you to pursue martyrdom, all right? That's not why I'm saying the story. I think that, in, that this is something more that's embraced when it comes as opposed to something that we chase after. But the question here is an important one for us. Where are you going? To ask Jesus that question, where are you going? It's a question I think marks us throughout this week and throughout these different stories. Where is Jesus going Indeed, there are two kingdoms that exist, and perhaps we might create even more kingdoms, but fundamentally there are two kingdoms, and those kingdoms exist in collision course. We might call the one a kingdom of fears and demands, the kingdom of this world, the one that is punished by death, uses death as a punishment, but also death lurks there in the backdrop of our stories, convincing us to engage in all kinds of things that don't necessarily lead to good. The other, of course, being God's own kingdom. The same kingdom that we pray, thy kingdom come. The same king we exult with Palm Sunday songs. But oftentimes we find ourselves in operations in the wrong kingdom. We find ourselves engaged in activities and, and the sorts that don't quite look like the one kingdom that we feel like we should be standing with. We see this in a, even in our own day. I think of a songs like uh, how deep the Father's love, right? There's that one portion of the song, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders, ashamed I hear my mocking voice cry out amongst the scoffers. Again, an identification with that ancient audience, but recognizing you might be operating in the wrong kingdom. Or Mel Gibson, uh, his cameo in The Passion of the Christ, if you've seen that movie, there's actually a Mel Gibson cameo there, and you don't see his face. You just see his hand. He's the one who nails the, the nail into Jesus' hands. So you just see Gibson's arms and hands. A sense that he is responsible for Christ's death or has a, a share in that. Of course, we each have our own stories of where we might have operated on the wrong side of the lines. But Jesus hasn't come to condemn. Jesus makes that clear in John chapter 3, verse 17. He hasn't come to condemn. And where Jesus is going is this. It says, who is to condemn? If you remember Romans 8. It is Christ who died, or rather who was raised, who is also at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Where are you going, Jesus? 
He's going to a cross. But then he's going to come from a grave. And he's going to go to the right side of the Father where he intercedes on our behalf. Jesus is going there for you. Jesus is going there for me. And so Jesus rode on. So that inspires us to some places this morning. It inspires us to a position. The position for us is one where we see ourselves not with the angry mob at the end of the week, but the celebratory mob at the beginning of the week, shouting with joy and jubilation that our rescue and our King has come, that God's sovereign reign is established in our hearts and our lives and in this world, and that we're participating in that city of God. It also places us in a unique posture where we're not only positioned ourselves close to Jesus, but we also take on an appropriate posture, a posture of humility and gratitude, thankfulness for what God has done in Christ. And it's important to hear in these first two places that none of this is of our doing. It's not like I'm working towards anything or I've accomplished anything with my life in this. Jesus has accomplished everything. God's grace makes it all possible. God's love is freely extended to you and to me without any expectation from us. It's just simply given. Our response is one of gratitude. And so our position and posture are grateful responses to what God has done. But there's also a possibility. And that possibility is the possibility of a future. It's the possibility that John's gospel we read in John chapter 10. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. That Jesus has offered to us as he rides into that city the possibility where we might experience a different kind of existence, a different way forward, a future. Not just a future in the afterlife, but life in life and life after life. That we might have life always because of God's great love for us. Jesus rode on. He rides on for you. Friends, this morning my prayer is that each one of us, as we continue to hold and to ponder these words of the one who came for us, the one who loves us, the one who holds us even now, that as we ponder those words, we might too find even more expression to sing, Hosanna, 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 all the way through the week. God rescue us, God rescue us, God deliver us, God save us, knowing that God doesn't disappoint because that's God's plan for you all along. Yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Friends, let us pray.